it begins on a dark night where a dark man waits with a dark purpose. You're listening to Saturday Morning Rewind with Tim Nidell. Let's go back in time when turtles roam the sewers of New York. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. I am the terror, the black in the And knowing was half the battle. Go, go! It's time for Saturday Morning Rewind. Hey, what's up, Toonsters? This is your host, Tim Nadell, bringing you another amazing, big episode of Saturday Morning Rewind. Today's episode, all about Aladdin, which I am super excited about because I was obsessed with Aladdin when I was growing up. I think it was my very first Disney animated movie I saw in the theater. It's definitely the first one I remember being super excited about watching in the theater. So today's episode, I have the one, the only Jonathan Freeman, who voiced Jafar. If you won't bow before a sultan... Then you will cower before a sorcerer! Genie, my second wish. I wish to be the most powerful sorcerer in the world! Not only did he voice Jafar in the movies, he also reprised the role in the Broadway production of Aladdin. I mean, how many of you knew that? How amazing is that to go from the cartoon to Broadway? He's a super talented guy, and I really hope you guys enjoy this interview. And if you do, please remember those positive iTunes reviews and remember to subscribe to us on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to us. That would really help us out a ton. Also remember to go to our website, SaturdayMorningRewind.com. So yeah, anyways, Jonathan Freeman. I'm excited. It's a good one. Hope you guys enjoy it. Before I wanted to talk to you about um, your time working on Aladdin, I kind of want to know what kind of kid were you, you were. Were you a were you a Disney kid? I was a fan of Disney. Um, I most everybody was though when I was growing up, and I most I mean adults too. You know, is um, uh, I liked uh, the differences I think between then and now when I was growing up is that in order to see those big Disney. Uh, animated features we'd go to the, we'd have to go to the movie theater to see them you know yeah um they weren't that available there was no videotape or you know um so uh and they didn't start showing them on television until i think much later i mean i don't know the timeline on any of this stuff but i'm sure you could find that out easily from disney when they started broadcasting you know um showing full length features so everything that I saw originally was in movie theaters. So yes, I did. I did. I was a Disney kid. We did go see all of them, nice. and um, and I loved them all. But everybody I knew did. You yeah. know, uh, all my friends and uh, my siblings and my parents. I mean, everybody went. Everybody loved them. Now Jafar is honestly in my top five favorite Disney villains of all time. So besides Jafar, who is one of your favorite Disney villains? Well, I had several, and I had several sort of uh, role models growing up, um, because although the there were character actors that Disney used, they also appeared, as you know, in a lot of television series in the in the uh, late fifties and the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, the actors, I mean, 
and I identified the voices. I remembered those voices. Like, how do I know that voice? That's Jerry <laughs> Colon. Oh, he's the voice of the March Hare, you know. Uh-huh. Um, my favorite villains, I guess, this is probably more an indication of the time period in which I grew up, though, were Captain Hook. Ah, yes. Uh, I liked Stromboli, although he terrified me. Uh-huh. And I guess the fox and the cat were sort of considered villains too. And I liked—I sort of liked their strange, weird, suave um, uh, characters. Um, I would say that the evil queen and Maleficent were certainly big favorites of mine. Um, And those were the those were the, I think that those were the first few that I sort of attached myself to, uh, and then there were you know people from other you know from film and television too, other villains who were not necessarily Disney villains, um, Cyril Richard as Captain Hook, yes. you know I I uh, I liked all the Captain Hooks, so, so uh, but those were the Disney villains that I think I was first familiar with. I like the way you're thinking, because Captain Hook is my number one favorite villain of all time. Yes, well, that's Hans Conry. Yes, yep, exactly. Who was a brilliant actor, and, and you know, was uh, in my lifetime, there was a series called The Danny Thomas Show, and he played Danny Thomas's Uncle Tanoose, um on that show, amongst many other things, too. I mean, he was a Broadway actor yeah. and, and did other films and yeah, things, amazing. too, but he was a wonderful actor and a great great voice uh, actor he was also the voice of snidely whiplash ah. who is a, a a cartoon character from the rocky and bullwinkle show so i don't know he he's been around you yeah know. yeah definitely now how, he's been a part of my life for a very long time too how did you get involved with disney and aladdin um i was uh let's see the uh, it's actually kind of a long story, but it 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 all uh, it all connects and makes sense. I got involved because when uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken started doing started their three picture deal for Disney, it was interesting to everybody who was in show business in the theater and Broadway. That is because everybody knew their work and loved them. Um, you know, they were already known commodities uh, in New York City and to people in the business. Although you know they didn't have the huge audience that they now have. I mean, Alan Menken, I think, has, you know, more Oscars, I heard, than anybody else in the world, <laughs> because he's done music for so many things, not just Disney. But anyway, so <clears throat> Howard and Alan, um, I think it, their three-picture deal uh, made, got a lot of people in New York interested. Um, and prior to that, I had done an off-Broadway show that was called In a Pig's Valise, and it was cast by a man named Albert Tavares. Albert Tavares, uh, it, was a, it was an off-Broadway show that I did with Nathan Lane, and uh, was at the, uh, uh, the Second Stage Theater, a small theater. At that time, it was uptown okay. on Upper Broadway. And, and Albert Tavares was the casting director for that. And years later, Albert Tavares was the casting director for Aladdin. And Albert Tavares uh, cast me as the villain in this show that I'm telling you about, In a Pig's Valise. And um, it also happened that my uh, one of my representatives at the time, whose name was Diana Rolnick, was very uh, interested in animation. And um, I think she 
had friends uh, in animation at Disney. Uh, she'd gone to university with a couple of people that worked at Disney. So she had an interest in it too. And when it came time, you know, to, uh, for uh, beauty and the beast and little mermaid and Aladdin, um, I guess it was probably because of Diana and, uh, Albert Tavares, you know, the, that, you know, that, that con convergence of two, two, two people in my lives that both wanted me to get in on this project and they thought I'd be great for it. And, and that, and that's how it happened. You know, I went in and auditioned and at the time you'd go in and audition. It was just Albert Tavares and a real to real tape recorder. And I brought my accompanist with me because I had to sing a song for them. And they'd sent me some scenes to uh, look at, to work on, and uh, a preliminary drawing of Jafar to give me some sort of a visual, some sort of a visual aid, and and that was it. That's how it happened. Um, and then after my first audition, months and months went by, and then I had a call back, and then another month or two went by, and just before Christmas of 1990, I booked the job, and I went to work in January 1991. They they rushed me right into wow. demo a song. I have the dubious distinction of having recorded the last song that Howard Ashman wrote called oh. Humiliate the Boy, which was a song that was written for um, the film of Aladdin and um, not used, but um, you can hear it. It's on recording. Nice. I'd love to hear that. Now that drawing, I think you can see it online too with pencil test. It's somewhere you online. You know, I think I think I may have seen it on YouTube. You know, there's a great album you should get. It's called uh, "The Music Behind the Magic," and it's it's uh, four discs. One disc is Little Mermaid. One disc is Beauty and the Beast, and two discs are Aladdin. Nice. And it's a lot of music that uh, are not in the films, but that they were working on at the time for the films, and. Um, it's very interesting. It is very, very interesting. You sort of hear the development of, of the music. You hear Howard and Alan talking about an idea, and then you hear them sort of at the piano noodling around and trying out some lyrics, and then you hear somebody demoing it, and then, and then you hear the final, the final cut from the film. Wow. It's a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great album. It's not that easy to find anymore. Okay, I just wrote that down. I need, to, I need to check eBay to see if I can find that. Magic behind the music, yeah. I, I assume that all Disney aficionados know where all the Disney, important Disney things are, but I guess it's not true. There's just so much stuff. Yeah, there's everywhere. so much. <laughs> that that first drawing that they showed you of Jafar, how much of that changed between what you saw and what we see on the screen? Um, a great deal of it changed, but there were a few things that there were a few things that were that remained. Um, and those were the things that I, um, I probably, those were probably things that I keyed into that I thought seemed important to yeah. me, uh, certain heavy lidded, uh, look <laughs> in his eyes. I, I always say that it, you know, when I looked at it, it looked like, you know, somebody who smoked opium because, uh, <laughs> he had those sort of just heavy-lidded, opiated eyes and a sort of psychotic look to them. And um, uh, and he was very smooth. He was not... Uh, in some very early drawings, he was... Uh, there are a couple drawings for Jafar, preliminary stuff, but nonetheless, drawings for Jafar where he was sort of short and very squat and uh, uh, sort of ragtag-looking, scruffy, um, kind of nasty and smelly-looking, you know. But the, the drawing that I got originally was sort of a, a drawing that, that made Jafar look very suave, which I think he still is. Um, yeah. 
I think he remained that remained a certain um, oh, I don't know sort of sort of cultured a, a gentleman up to no good you know. You know, I think one thing that really stands out to me when it comes to his looks is his mouth. That beak-like, kind of a sinister-looking mouth just yes. really just pops out. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I guess you know how these things work. A lot of different artists try out a lot of different things, and then they finally, you know, they, they choose someone, I guess, who's going to be the principal animator. And Jafar's principal animator was a wonderful Andreas Deja, yeah. and he certainly... He certainly did Jafar justice. Yeah. I'll say that. There isn't anything about Jafar that I don't think is perfect. Yeah, he's by far my, my favorite modern animator for Disney. Yes, I I agree. I think a lot of people would, would agree with us, too. He, he really understands the medium, and um, he, aside from whatever intuition he has, he works very hard at it, too. Did he pull you aside at any time to get any of um, his characteristics down for Jafar? Well, sure. I mean, I, I, I'm, I more pulled him aside. I mean, I, I was so excited to go to work on a Disney animated feature because all I ever wanted to do as a kid was to be the voice of a Disney villain. So it was very exciting for me. And I guess a lot of people go in and they record their stuff and they leave, you know, and I asked if it would be possible to go meet the animators and go to the studio and see what was up and what was going on. They were like, yeah, sure. They didn't, it didn't seem to be a problem. Um, they seemed a bit surprised. I don't know. Maybe a lot of people did, didn't ask uh, that much or maybe just weren't as interested as I was in it, but I was very interested. And I, um, uh, I spent a good deal of time. I mean, every time I went out at that time, you know, there was no phone patching either. So I'd have to actually physically get in an airplane from New York and go out to uh, the Disney lot to the corner of Dopey Drive and Goofy, Goofy Lane, <laughs> Studio B, and um, and do the work. So it was a journey every time. And I worked for a year and nine months on it. It was a long, wow. it was a long haul. And um, so I don't know if, if, Andreas grabbed me or I grabbed him. I, <laughs> but I was very interested in the work and his work especially. And, um, you know, they, when they, uh, when you work in the studio, uh, voicing the stuff, sometimes you, they, you, you're able to work with your scene partners. Sometimes you work with the readers. Sometimes you work as, as, the, as it progresses, you sometimes just work alone, just go line to line to line to line to little changes that they need, because all the editing, you know, is done in the voicing process. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and they film you, or, or tape you, whatever it is, they uh, had a couple of cameras going, so they got a lot of mouth stuff, and they got a lot of hands, and they got a lot of eyes, and they got a lot of stuff that they used, and they got a lot of, of um, idiosyncrasies and mannerisms, I think, I don't know. The best example I always use, I mean, I could use Jafar, but I don't. I, I prefer to use an inanimate object, which is Mrs. Potts. I, I always think, you know, if you if you uh, saw that teapot, just a still drawing, you might not think that it looks like Angela Lansbury, uh -huh. you, you know. But when it is animated, uh, and it's not just because of her voice, it's because of her mannerisms and her her, idiosyncr her idiosyncratic voice and her little chuckles and and things that only Angela Lansbury would have done. 
um, all of a sudden you very much say, oh, that, that teapot does look like Angela Lansbury. They've captured some of her idiosyncrasies yep. and mannerisms. And I think that's what they, they do. They're quite brilliant. And the, the first time that I noticed it was when I saw a pencil test of the first, the very, very first scene in Jafar. He rides through the desert and just before he grabs that thief, Gazim, I think his name is, yeah. by the throat, and he says, you're late. Um, Jafar does a little inhalation. He does a little, you're late. And, and, and the inhalation was there. Um, you see, you know, him taking the breath before he says you're late. Well, it was very excited, aside from the fact it was exciting to see it. And I was like, oh my God, that's, that's exactly what I did. You know, I, I wanted to play it many times over for me so I could look at it. It was exciting. Um, that's one of the things that makes the people like Andreas and those brilliant animators so great because they do capture those things Mm -hmm. and it, it, it does make them seem more alive, less like a cartoon and more it, like a possibility of being a real person. I think. It really gives them the soul. Yeah. I also heard that uh, before they got Gilbert Gottfried, you actually recorded some lines as Iago. Is that true? I did. And they're, they're on that album that I told Are you they? about. Okay. Oh, great. Uh, the ma- the music behind the magic. I think it, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. You'll have, you could ask somebody else, John, Musk or Ron Clemens, what their intention was, but I think originally, and this is what I'm remembering, I'm not sure if memory serves so well 23 three years later, but what I was remembering was that the parrot at the time was going to talk like a, just squawk like a parrot, and the parrot was going to imitate all these other people, like when he imitates Jasmine in the garden. Oh, and, yeah, okay. Um, he imitates Jafar, I think, a couple of times. So they, I'm not sure that they, at that point, they had thought further than that, or maybe they just hadn't found the right person yet. They hadn't hired Gilbert yet. So uh, they're, on that same recording of Humiliate the Boy, you hear me playing Iago, too, talking yeah. like a parrot and um, squawking around <laughs> and giving voice to a character that that wasn't, I guess, fully formed yet, yeah. or... You know, like I said, maybe they just hadn't found, hadn't gotten to Gilbert yet. They just hadn't found him yet. Or, you know, I don't, I don't know everything that goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I only know where some of the bodies are hidden. Yeah, exactly. Well, that would have been fun to hear, but Gilbert definitely gave the the movie another element that made. Oh, it so he was great. great. Yeah. Are you kidding? I mean, once it helped. I think it helped the character of Jafar too, the writing and the playing of it, because once. Um, once they got Gilbert, who was very psychotic as that parrot, it helped me to smooth Jafar out a little bit. Okay. You know, um, I was able to have something to play against. And he was able to have something to play against. You know, I could be calm, and um, he could be hysterical. And, when, <laughs> uh, and, that, and that, I think, that was a good... Um, those are two good, two good opposites to put together. Yeah, exactly. Did you have a chance to record it all with him? Oh, sure. A lot, yeah. yeah. I recorded more with Gilbert probably than anybody else. I think everybody else I only had a couple of days in the studio with, people that I had scenes with, I mean. Okay. But um, Gilbert, um, we were in the studio quite a, quite a bit, yeah, together. I can't imagine what those sessions would be like. Cause he seems such a unique character in himself. <laughs> well, he's very funny, <laughs> but... 
He doesn't like very many people to know. He's actually a very nice man. He's married <laughs> to a very nice woman, and they have lovely kids. <laughs> That's not the Gilbert Gottfried that most of the world knows, perhaps. No, but, I don't um, think so. <laughs> I'll tell you that I think he's actually a very nice guy, and um, I like him a lot. And uh, it was it was a pleasure to work with him. If there were more than three people in the studio, it would constitute an audience, and we'd get a good show. <laughs> <laughs> And what about the the late the great Robin Williams? He is one of my favorites. Um, what was he like? Well, you know, I worked only very briefly with him, and um, you know, he was terrific. I mean, I don't, I've never heard anybody say that he wasn't terrific. I don't, I, I didn't know him. I can't tell you that I was great friends with him. I didn't didn't work with him as much as I worked with Gilbert. Mm -hmm. You know, but um, I think that. Um, it was a great coup for them to get Robin Williams to play that part. Um, I think, I'm not sure. You have to ask, um, do an interview with um, Eric Goldberg, perhaps. But I think they struggled a bit with what they were going to do with the genie. And I think the struggle was, you know, the struggle that Disney always has, which which is one of wanting to be politically correct and, you know, needing to be politically correct yeah. and, or is, you know what I mean? And, you know, traditionally genies are slaves or black African slaves mm -hmm. in the literature, in some of the films that have been made of Aladdin, you know, there's a lot of different versions of Aladdin. There's other cart. There's actually other um, animated animation, animated uh, cartoons of Aladdin. One of them is Popeye and olive oil doing Aladdin. Um, there's a, a, a great film called uh, Thief of Baghdad, and there's an early, there are two versions of Thief of Baghdad that it's based on. Anyway, in all the versions, uh, all of those versions, the genie is um, black, is an African slave, because he is a slave to the lamp. That's the tragedy. That's his tragedy, is that he, he really does want to be freed. So I think that they struggled, perhaps, with whether or not that was the right thing to do. And I, I think, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, they decided, well, let's not have him be black or let's just make him, let's make him blue or green or, you know. And um, I believe that it was Eric Goldberg who had the idea to use Robin Williams. And I think he had an old, um, like a 33 of a comedy album, you know. I don't know how old you are. Um, we haven't met in person, um, but... Uh, people who are old enough know that they used to, you know, uh, there used to be comedy albums, <laughs> yep. which I think there may still be on CD, I don't know. Yeah. But um, all of the all of the great comedians did them. And uh, Robin Williams was no exception. And there was an album of his that I believe Eric Goldberg took and uh, animated, um, used that used that to animate too. I'm not oh. saying that very well. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. And uh, used that as the voicing thing, and it it was a, a section of the of his of his act where I think he jumps back and forth and in and out of you know many different characters yep, yep. As, as he as he used to do so brilliantly and and does in the film you know he's he's the blue genie he's a goat he's a monkey he's a this he's a that you know <clears throat> he's a uh, smoking a cigarette in a, in a French beret you know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. those segments in the movie. Yep. And I think I think it was a brilliant idea, uh, who whoever it was, and I think it was Eric Goldberg, and it was and it was you know realized brilliantly, 
And Robin Williams was absolutely the right person to do it. I can't imagine anybody else. Oh no, not at all. Fitting the bill, not no, now. It, I mean. it wouldn't be nearly as big as it is now without Robin. No. Let's fast forward a little bit to after production. Um, you later on get involved in the Broadway production of Aladdin. How did that happen? Well, um, I still am involved in it. Oh, okay. Um, how did it happen? I don't know. You know, there are many. These characters live on in many different things in electric parades at Disneyland and in Tokyo and Disney World and board games and there was the return of Jafar and you know it was sort of um and um at the time that we made the movie there was no such thing as Disney theatrical I mean it, it wasn't it wasn't invented yet um I guess Beauty and the Beast was the first Disney theatrical project to be done mm-hmm on Broadway and um, it was very successful. Anyway, I think that they, I think they always wanted to try to do uh, Aladdin on Broadway and um, perhaps they thought it was uh, too difficult. They, you know, there, there were, there were smaller versions of it at theme, at their theme parks. There's a uh, Aladdin, there was an Aladdin show. I don't know if there still is Disneyland, I think, right? Uh, Yep. It's still there. I I just saw it two weeks ago. Yeah. And that is, you know, pretty much uh, based on the film. But I think that, I think that, that, that it was just a question of the time being right. I think the convergence of all of the right, exactly right um, artistic, elements had to be in place for them to feel that they could go ahead with it. And um, I don't know, I guess about five years, maybe more ago, we started doing readings at, at Disney Theatrical, just around, the, just around the table, you know, different versions of it. And I also think partially uh, Alan Menken <clears throat> was interested in trying to resurrect some of the material and some of the ideas that they had worked on for the film that that didn't get used in the film. Howard died early on in the process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they brought in Tim Rice, and he was a wonderful collaborator. And, you know, a lot of things happen. That's how things happen. When you're making a new musical, which it may as well be, these films, these uh, animated features are really like making new musicals, you know. It's sort of two steps forward, one step back in the development process, you know. A scene is written, and a song is written for a scene, and then at some point the scene is cut, and so they, the song disappears, too. So there were things written, uh, characters and relationships and songs that were written originally for the film. And I think that they wanted to try to use those. I think that Alan wanted to try to get back to the original idea that they had for the film, which was that it was supposed to be a bit more like a, a Bob Hope and Bing Crosby Road picture, if you know what those okay. are. Yep. Sort of a buddy movie. And... Um, there were all these other characters. I mean, even when I went to work on the movie, there were there were characters that he had a mother at one point. There were three friends at one point, uh, and there was some beautiful music, including a, a ballad that I think is one of the most beautiful ballads called "Proud of Your Boy," that was cut from the film. <clears throat> and I think they wanted to get back to that. So Disney theatrical by this time had been pretty well established, and we started doing a lot of readings. And I think you know once they thought that they could figure out the technical aspects of it, flying carpets and, um, you know, genies coming out of bottles and so on and so forth. Once they figured all that stuff out and Jafar disappearing into a bottle at the end, you know, once they figure a lamp rather, um, 
I think once they sort of felt they had that under control, they were ready to go ahead. And um, I don't know. I think that's all. I think that's all it was. I think it was just time. I think the stars had to be aligned correctly, and um, and then they they put together a great creative team. The creative team forged forward uh, very quickly. At one point, we after doing maybe a year or two of readings, they did a pilot project in um, Seattle at the Fifth Avenue Theater. And it was a pretty bare-bones production. It was really to see if the story worked on stage and if they felt that they really had something that they could you know, develop into a big Broadway musical. And uh, that was successful, and a few years went by, and then we went back to work on it, and then we took it out of town to Toronto, and then we opened in um, New York City on Broadway um, a year and a half ago. Wow. It's a long road. Yeah. Most of these projects are. I mean, you know, the animated features, too. I mean, the animated features take years and years to make. They're labor-intensive, and it involves a lot of different, um, you know, artists and trades. And, and the same thing is true of the Broadway musical. And now it's very successful. It, it's um, <clears throat> had great success in New York, and it just opened in Tokyo not that long ago with an all-Japanese company wow. in Japanese, and it's very successful. And they're getting ready to open a production in uh, Germany, in Hamburg, in a couple of months, I think. And um, then it will open on the West End in London, I think, next spring. And then there'll be a big tour in Australia, and then a United States tour. I think that's what's on the docket right now. And, you know, I'm sure that there'll be other productions, too. The show has legs, as they say, (laughs) in in the in the show business in the musical theater world, they say that show's got legs. Um, uh, as as uh, Lion King has proved that it has legs. Oh, yeah, it's been definitely. I think more than fifteen years now for Lion wow. King. Wow! And you know it's it's not it's not that easy to make a hit. It's not you know you can have all the elements in place, but there's still something <laughs> extra. It's it's kind of like alchemy. It's something that happens that. It either happens or it doesn't, and it happened. It's um, it's a wonderful show. I hope you get to see it. Oh, I would love to. Now, would you tour if it toured America? Or are would you, I? Yeah, are you with the touring version of it, or are you just uh, stationed in New York? Whether or not I'll keep doing it here or go someplace else with it, I don't. I mean, that's you know, yeah. that's a time, long time way away tell, right yeah. now. Or you know maybe maybe one of these days I'll actually just stop being Jafar. That would be okay too. It's been it's a long, we've been together a long time. Yeah, no kidding. Jafar and I. <laughs> I'm sure some of his sinisterness is kind of seeping in, you know, and and coming out every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I hope not. <laughs> Do you approach him differently for stage versus the animated role? Well, yeah. I mean, it's a different. Um, it's the same story. It's the same story that's been around for thousands of years, you know. But uh, it's told in a different way. And the, and the Broadway musical is a bit different than the animated film. Um, first of all, it would have to be because the, uh, the animated feature is a sort of action-adventure picture. And I, you can't really do an action-adventure on stage. And uh, it's, it's Broadway, so it needed to be made into a Broadway musical. It is a little bit different. It has... Uh, a lot of things from the film, um, the original story, the original source material, I mean. and you know, But it, it is its own animal. It is definitely a big, fancy 
Martin's Barclay Broadway musical. Make no mistake about that. It's um, it's very glamorous, and uh, there are elements of the show that were things that were uh, meant to be used in the film and got cut, like this wonderful song "Proud of Your Boy," for example. Okay. His three friends are back in the sh- are in the show that were and they're not in the film. Um, there are no animals in the show. There's no um, there's no tiger. There's no monkey. There's no parrot. Um, there's still an Iago, but he is a person. Oh, okay, I see. But uh, no animals. So, you know, um, they had to solve that problem, too. <clears throat> you know, it's not uh, not so easy. And I don't think they really, really wanted to stick a guy in a tiger suit and a parrot suit <laughs> and a monkey suit, you know. Um, so uh, that's all I can say about it. I mean, you have to see it. It's, it, it really is its own its own animal, but it's still... It is still Aladdin, and it is still very much uh, a, a part of the movie, and it has some wonderful stuff that is new to the just to the musical too that wasn't um, that wasn't connected or cut from anywhere, and uh, it's just it it's just it's a lovely, really a lovely a lovely show, and it's a the audience appeal is vast. I mean. It appeals to young kids who perhaps are coming to see it because they've seen the animated feature. Yeah. It also, you know, is uh, appeals to their parents and their grandparents who probably saw the movie when it came out originally. And then, in addition to that, uh, you know, it's a it's a very romantic story too. Actually, um, Jasmine and Aladdin are a little bit older than they are in the in the film. They're not teenagers; they're young adults, and so. There's a real romance, and um, so the new demographic is, um, it's a big date night in New York. You know, kids are coming with their dates, teenagers and young adults, uh, nice. to see the show, because it's, it's very beautiful, it's uh, very funny, it's uh, a little bit sexy, and um, it's a great story. I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is it's a great story, and it's been a great story for a long time. Well, it's it's been on my radar for a long time, and it's on my wish list of things to do. So if it ever comes here to Montana, I'm checking it out. And if I ever go to New York, I'm going to be there day one. Okay, you're in Montana. Yes, I am. Yeah. So no shows really come here very often. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't I don't know very much about Montana. I mean, is it uh, is it a big touring? Or is there a city that a big city where they have there's, big tours? No, honestly, there's not. I mean, the the biggest tourism would be Yellowstone, but there's no big city <laughs> near it. So no. Well, you'll have to come to New York then. Exactly. I, I'm going to give you a call. <laughs> At some point, it will be in Los Angeles. I'm oh, sure. See, I, I go there once a year, so maybe I can do that. I'm sure it'll be in Los Angeles at some point. But Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm a huge fan of your work, so this has been a huge honor. Oh, it's a pleasure. So hopefully, I can see your production sometime and maybe get to meet you in person. Well, please let us know if you do if you do come to New York to see it because. Uh, a, you'll have a good time. Of course, I'd be happy to meet you. It, it, would it be too hard in your voice to hear a little bit of Jafar, or would that strain your voice too much? No, I can do a little bit for you. Okay, can you can you close the episode as Jafar? My most humble thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Come back to Agrabah sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Saturday Morning Rewind. Please check them out on Facebook and Twitter. And that's all, folks.